Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Welcome to The Last Wicked, a cricket podcast for the most passionate cricket fan in you. I'm your host, Benny, and I'm joined by a couple of friends, Mayank. Hey, everyone. And Nish. Hello, everyone. Unfortunately, our co-host, him and Nish, won't be available this episode as he has to spend just a little bit more time this weekend decoding the mysteries of the universe. Still, we soldier on. This week, we will be speaking with journalist Raghu Kesavan, who recently wrote an article for The Wire titled... Siraj, Sundar, and Natarajan are the real representatives of New India. So we talked to him about the Indian identity shift over the last two decades, the desire to claim collective success as our own, and for some reason, we talk about Chelsea and Arsenal. And later in the episode, we're going to have a special IPL-themed trivia contest. I use the word contest lightly because there are no real prizes in the end. Just uh, the smug satisfaction of knowing IPL trivia slightly better than the rest of us. But first, since our last episode, England went on to win the first test against India in a dominating fashion. Mayank, do you have some quick thoughts on how that uh, how the series has started? It's been it's been really fascinating. I, I honestly didn't feel that it would match up to India Australia, and I think it's still a step below India Australia, but. It's it's going to be a really good series because India has a few injuries, which become slightly weak, and England seem really well prepared, probably best that they've ever been. Nish? Yeah, it's been quite a surprising uh, week, given the expectations surrounding the series that India would romp home 4-0 and all those you know lofty predictions. So it's really good to see England put up a fight and not just put up a fight, you know, uh, log in a comprehensive win. Six wins uh, away now for England at a stretch, which is uh, awesome and bodes well for the future of the season. I maintain that if India had won the toss, it probably would have been a completely different result. Um, because I think with Root, Stokes, and all of these guys piling on like 578 runs, um, I think that really broke the Indian team. Uh, but I feel if India had batted first and put up a large score, like, you know, there would have been confidence would have been high for even like the support bowlers like Nadim and uh, Sundar. Uh, but yeah, impressive win. I don't want to take anything away from the English team. You know, I was thinking that, oh, they don't have, they're not putting Broad in the first choice, the first, le- the first 
choice 11 or they don't have Bearstow and you know I was more focused on who they don't have but the players that they did have uh, did pretty good especially Sibley he you know especially on the first day he did a great job and they had that cushion of runs even though they didn't, they didn't hit 200 in the second innings you know that was enough for them to uh, you know seal that win I think it was too much to expect like another encore with like last day chase <laughs> at the back of a mind I was like come on Rishabh come on you can do it <laughs> you can you can do this two tests in a row but uh, no, I think sometimes you just you know, sometimes we lose. And I, I remember, Nish, you were, you were joking, like, I think the last episode, or I think the first episode, actually, that India will never lose a test again. And I said, I'm sure they're going to lose the next one. And that ended yeah. up happening. <laughs> we should probably go to Vegas. Or so you should can... probably go to Vegas, <laughs> Benny. <laughs> yeah, right. It basically means we can blame Benny whenever India loses. Yes. That's right. That's right, man. We have a scapegoat in our team here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take that blame. Our guest this week is a journalist who writes on politics and sports for the online publication, thewire.in. Uh, we are going to talk to him about his recent article that came out right after the Heady series win down under for Ajinkya Rahane and men. He is a fan of Arsenal, uh, Rafael Nadal, and interestingly, the Indian cricket team, depending on whom they're playing. So, Raghu Kesavan, welcome to The Last Wicket. Thanks for having me on. So, Raghu, let's start with that last line I mentioned in your introduction. A fan of the Indian cricket team, depending on whom they're playing. Is there a story there? Um, not, not really a story as much as I just have a, I have a soft spot for, you know, um, the West Indies or some of the weaker teams like Bangladesh. Um, I, don't, I don't really, I think I support the underdog as much as possible. Mm. So, I don't, it doesn't feel right sort of being a, a raging sort of India fan. If we're right. smashing, you know, Bangladesh around 600 <laughs> or something, like that. Um, I'm I'm incredibly partisan when it comes to us playing England or Australia or South Africa. Right. Um, but but you know, the others I can't really I can't really get uh, g'd up about it. Okay, I mean I, I get it a little bit. I mean I, if the Indian team is playing against West Indies, I can understand because you want you like the players individually. I mean I like the players individually. I want them to do well. Um, but I don't think there's any situation where I would not support India. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's not, you know, it's, I, I, I don't even, I don't really end up watching those series very closely either. I, um, I think it's also just more, more generally, there are, I think, like you said, you know, I, there are players that I like, you know, I like, I like right. Gumra, I like Pujaha, um, I like Gil a lot, um, but I'm not a huge fan of the sort of in-your-face, um, you know, chest-thumping cricket that we've right. been playing these um, yeah, I am a fan of it. I'm a, I am a fan of it when it's against the Australians, <laughs> but it feels like punching down when it's against uh, some of the other teams. Yeah, well, well, we'll get into a little bit of that later. Uh, but Raghu, I wanted to say that you know we wanted to have you on the show because we really enjoyed your article. Uh, you captured the essence of how you know the national identity for Indians is best reflected through some of the newest cricket stars in the Indian team. But before we get into it, could you give us a brief overview of your article for the benefit of those who haven't read it yet and you know how you came upon the idea of writing it yeah sure i mean um it, it was sort of sparked off by this um by something that happened in the run-up to the to the series in australia um in a column greg chapel wrote that uh, you know virat kohli is the most australian non-australian cricketer to ever tour the country um and kohli was asked about this at a press conference and he said 
he said something like, you know, it's not about me being Australian. Um, I represent the new India. Right. And, you know, completely coincidentally, I'd been doing some reading around representation as a political concept. I'm trying to write something about it. Um, and I got stuck. Um, so this seemed like a, a sort of happy coincidence, um, a way to use all of that stuff that I'd, you know, I'd thought of or put together in a, in a sort of ready-made argument. You know, I, I, I sort of knew what I wanted to say. Um, there was lots of, there were lots of examples that I could use. There was some history. Um, and of course, we got off to a disastrous start. So, you know, the article was conceived during that Adelaide test. So, so it evolved over the course of the series. Because, I don't know what you're uh, talking about. I wiped that <laughs> from my memory. Yeah, no, because, you know, there was a there was a line that I had to read because uh, I said uh, we should, you know, I said something like we should resist easy jokes about what the Adelaide result says about the prognosis for Kohli's New India. Mm. But of course, as the series went on, this became less and less appropriate. <laughs> yeah. come up with a slightly different way of, of making the argument. Um, but no, I mean, so, so a brief overview of the piece, you can sort of think about it in, in, in three sections. Um, it focuses on a general question uh, initially, which is how do national teams uh, represent their countries at all? Um, it's, I think, one of those questions that people assume an answer to because it's, it's usually not explicitly asked in those terms. Um, you often hear players say that, you know, it's an honor to represent my country, but we don't really ask what it is about them that make them representative. Right. Um, the one, the one argument that I thought most people would agree with is that national teams are supposed to represent the best players that a country could muster um, to to represent them. And and sort of slightly paradoxically, them being the best, you know, the best Indian cricketers or the best West Indian cricketers or the best English footballers makes them representative. That's the relationship. It's based on merit. Um, and you know, then I go through some examples of why this might not necessarily be the case. And the, the sort of unsexy answer is that national teams are basically representative because they're the only game in town. That there is usually a body like the BCI or um, Cricket Australia or whoever that says, look, this is the team, this is the team that represents the country, and that's what makes them representative. Um, which is what leads to the, the second bit of the piece, which is, you know, which, which sort of starts off with the idea that this is slightly unsatisfying. There's something, it doesn't really capture why people watch sport. Um, or why they find it entertaining. You know, we're not talking about institutional arrangements or administrative decisions. Um, people, you know, really derive meaning from from sport. Um, and the example I use to illustrate the, you know, the sort of what you could think of as a as a more cultural form of representation is how Diego Maradona represented Argentinian football. Right. Um, but you know, there are there are examples closer to home. I mean, if you think of um, the little thrill of pride we all feel as Indian fans when somebody says that Indian batsmen are great players of spin or when somebody will comment on, you know, the risky technique of subcontinental bas batsmen. There's no reason why any of us as fans should feel pride at this. But I don't know about you guys, but I feel a little glow every time somebody says, you know, Indian batsmen are great players of spin. We turn these sort of sporting quirks into national heirlooms almost. Yeah, almost you know, like we just accepted that Indians are, because that's how, what I grew up believing too. You know, we yeah. hear about Azardine, Vivius Lakshman, Risti players of spin. That's what all the Australian commentators would talk about, you know, the English commentators. And then, you know, like more recently, whenever Indians struggle against spin, it's almost like, but we are supposed to be really good players of spin. Why yeah. are we struggling? Yeah. And, you know, and these are, and the, the, the stories are rooted in, in fact, you know, that, Indian pitches aren't conducive to fast bowling, so our batsmen grow up playing spin, right? So, so there is right. there is some there's always some like a sort of material base to to these things, but they do take on a life of their own, and they're sort of encapsulated in little moments. So, you know, I, I'm sure we can all remember Sidhu charging down the wicket to warn 
smashing him over his head. You know, it's sort of, in my mind, it's sort of, you know, a little gem of a memory about, and it sort of, you know, exemplifies this this legend that we have about Indian cricket. Right. Um, and that's that's really, you know, I think the the meat of um, sporting representation. I mean, I think that that's, that's the kind of, those stories, those myths, if you want, those legends are what constitute, um, constitute this kind of representation. And then, you know, the, the final section of the piece, which is, which, which sort of deals with the specific, specific question, which is, does Kohli represent a new India? Is right. um, the, the sort of argument that I wanted to make, because you could see very clearly what he meant. You know, he, he sort of means this aggressive chest out cricket um, where we're not deferential or apologetic, which I think are unfair characterizations of Indians in the past. Um, and it's what the Australians recognized as well, right? I mean, so if you think back to um, the last series we played there, or if you guys have watched that Amazon show that they made about Cricket Australia, the, the test, there are two episodes that concern that series, the 2018, 2019, right. um, where these guys just him. They're like, you know, Kohli, you know, Justin Anger is like, Kohli might be the best I've ever seen. And, you know, this is a guy who has Steve Smith playing in his team. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, you know, there, there's clearly something there about the way he approaches the game, which is new, not just to us, but to other people as well. Um, but the question, of course, is, does he represent a new India? And this, for some reason, brought me back to, you know, when I was a kid watching that great batting lineup, uh, which had which went from you know Seva to Dravid, Lakshman, Ganguly, uh, Tendulkar, um, and that period of cricket from sort of 2001 onward, where it really did seem like a deliberate effort was made to change how we played the game. And there were there are sort of little moments that you can think of, you know, Ganguly making Steve Waugh wait for the toss, or him taking his shirt off and waving it around on Lord's balcony. Yes. All of these things were slight, you know, there are sort of moments, and I couldn't really. Um, place it. I couldn't come up with like a clinching argument until I trolled through Ganguly's book, and he just says it. He just straight out says that I I'd seen the body language of foreign players and their captains, and we thought, and I thought we should mimic this. Um, and you know, so so that's the sort of cricket side of it. The new India side of it, because this is of course two way rep, uh, relationship. You know, representation always involves somebody who represents and the represented. The new India side of it, you know, is slightly more difficult. It's more nebulous, um, but. The reason I think this kind of thing finds traction is because there is a sense in which there are insecurities or anxieties about how India faces outward to the world. Um, and not seeming sort of deferential or meek, I think was important to people then as, as it is now. Um, and I think cricket sort of became a, a vehicle for that. Right. Um, so, so when Kohli said that, you know, I represent New India, there is a sense in which, you know, perhaps perhaps he does represent this kind of anxiety, this kind of needing to seem, um, you know, and, and it also plays into, you know, ideas of masculinity and things like that, um, which, you know, we can, we can get into later. But in the piece, what I end with is um, there are, there's an alternative New India that, that you could think about coming out of this series, right? There's all of these young players who we'd never seen before, some of whom have, have had really sort of unlikely journeys into cricket, into test cricket, especially. Um, and one of the things that I thought was was interesting was how many of them seem to have been, you know, seem to have cut their teeth in the IPL, which right. really seems to have been one of the few places in public life where, you know, liberalization, which I think sparked all of this off in 92, where liberalization has really paid off, where, you know, it's genuinely delivered prosperity for a la much larger number of cricketers than, than, you know, than could have made a living before right. um, playing the game. Um, so I think that, you know, I think it's more interesting to think about something structural that we've done well, 
uh, where we've set up scouting networks where you know new talent is recognized um, and you can see the effects of it rather than sort of rooting you know ideas of new india or if you want to think of it in those terms i don't think it's hugely helpful but um rather than rooting those kinds of ideas in you know 20 year old anxieties about you know our place in the world so thanks for joining us raghu um so i think one of the things that came to mind when i was reading your um piece was you know before obviously kohli mentioning that comment we've had a lot of really good cricketers from small towns there's anadoni there's been you know manav patel bhuvneshwar kumar mohammad shami all of these people have played for decade and and dhoni specifically you know was captain even before um kohli had made a side uh, made as a pace permanent so how do you think that that those people were different from today's um you know youngsters whether it's siraj whether it's any of the new ones yeah so i mean i don't i don't really think uh they're different in any in any sense that that really has an impact on the argument i think what i would say is that the depth of indian cricket is new that you know the 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 depth of quality that we can feel as evidenced by the series does seem to me to be new especially um you know our fast bowling depth i think that's an unprecedented state of affairs in indian cricket to have such bench strength uh, amongst our fast bowlers um but no i mean i i don't think that you know that i don't think that these things um i don't think there's any sudden break i think that these things happen slowly over time um and occasionally you'll have moments like this where it seems like from between yesterday and today there's a huge difference but i think that uh, the effect is cumulative um not sort of it's not a sort of on and off switch um so i think you know i think that the success of provincial cricketers um before has obviously you know i think it's obviously helped and i think it's a good thing um i think it's a, i think that the point that we should take away from all of this is that i think that is something that we should build on um you know there were there was lots of stuff coming out of um the sort of fallout from this series where there were australians you know langer said it himself afterwards you know that if there's if it's a billion and a half people the 11 that get selected are going to be pretty good um and i think it was gideon hague on his podcast he said that you know that we we've, we've all been saying for for years it, you know if india really took advantage of its you know the demographic quote unquote advantage that they have um indian cricket would be unstoppable I mean I think part of this is our grapes but part of it is also true that uh, you know that there that there must be a lot of talent that we do miss out on that that isn't picked up by um Ranji scouting networks or IPL scouting networks or people just don't get the chance to play because there are barriers to entry which have nothing to do with talent or your will to to play the game um so yeah so I mean to, to answer your question I do, I think it's a sort of continuation of um the great players like Sehwag or or dhoni who we've seen in the past and you know long may it continue and i think one interesting point that i was thinking about as as i was reading it was it's not like we've not had you know in your face cricketers before we've had them and you know they've been part of you know good indian sides and the the last one that comes to mind is gautam gambhir who had you know three phenomenal years as test openers in 2008 to 2010 and he was definitely like that he didn't care he would be happy to elbow the opposition like he literally did and and you know that that sort of tactics but it it's very clear that it's probably the first time that we've had a leader who's so uh you know outspoken in a way and which is why there's a lot of focus on this aspect even though in my mind in the last 20 years or so you've seen more and more as you said continuation of people coming from smaller towns and 
you know, uh, from more um, backgrounds, which are, um, you know, that they have very few things going on in their in their families and, and things like that. But they they fight all those odds and and make their way through. So I think it's it's a combination of that aspect as well that we have um, we have a cricketer who's right in the center and he's been very good for a very long time as compared to Gumbir who was very good but for a short period of time. So yeah, I mean that's it's that's an interesting example. I mean I I guess who are the others? I mean who are the others who you could think of who would sort of fit fit this kind of description? I would think Sarav Ganguly. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and Ganguly was he, the one I thought of. Yeah, and, and Ganguly definitely fits that. And, and there's one more than one reason he fits that. He was also, as Jeffrey Boycott called him, the Prince of Kolkata. And because he came from, you know, a, a very different background where he was from a very rich family, which is an absolute opposite of pretty much everybody in that Fab Five lineup. If you think about Dravid, Lakshman, Tendulkar, Seva, Kumble, no, none of them came from a very rich background. They were well educated, yeah. But none of them came from, you know, a, a posh family as, as Ganguly did, um, which I know is not the story of uh, of Kohli, but you know, from an attitude-wise, it definitely seems similar. So I, I think it's interesting because, you know, I I agree with you that this this kind of um, cricket has a sort of genealogy. There are, you know, you can trace it back. I trace it back to Ganguly. Gambhir is a good example. Um, I think the important thing is to be able to back it up, right? Like um, with Ganguly. My sense was that it often came across as petulant, you know, that he was he was angry, but he was unsure why he was angry. Or he sort of, you know, felt it, that he had to be, but it felt put on to me. I'm not sure. It didn't seem like... I mean, it reflected, for, to me at least, it showed or reflected a sense of entitlement more than anything else. Yeah, possibly. And I mean, so, you know, there's a good piece um, a couple of years ago by Jared Kimber in the Cricket Monthly, where he talks about... Um, sort of the history of sledging in the Australian game and how nasty club cricket in Australia can be and how they sort of all bred to play in this way. So when people get to the test side, they're sort of surprised at how sort of gentle the game is compared to the their, their sort of apprenticeships that they've served in uh, lower tiers of Australian cricket. Um, and I really think that at that time, because War's team had perfected this sort of mental disintegration thing, you know, where, where they would go out deliberately to try to break you down through aggression and sledging, um, I think people started thinking that this was the way to, to win. Um, and it worked for the Australians because they did win. Um, but it's not clear to me that we've had any success until Kohli um, playing this kind of cricket. That, that you know, that the, the aggression was, you know, disconnected from our success or failure. That it was just a sort of add-on. I think with Kohli, he genuinely can, because, you know, he's enormously gifted. He genuinely seems like he can bend games to his will, you know, he can sort of go out and be like, I'm not going to get out today or I'm going to score 100 today. And, you know, it's obviously not the case, but there is an impression that sort of reality bends around him because he wants it to. Um, and I think that gives this kind of cricket more, you know, an air of plausibility that it potentially didn't have under, you know, with Gambhir or under Ganguly. Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, kind of like, you know, ask or talk about this point, right? Kohli, like you mentioned, Drago, um, his talk, you know, is often backed by his skills as well. But at the same time, I think one thing that we should consider is Ganguly also had the same talk. And, you know, it's arguable that if he had the same skill, probably not. But the game in today's, in Kohli's age has been completely industrialized when compared to Ganguly's age, right? And he's, he's, he's sort of a player who's at the right time, you know, at the right place sort of thing as well. Because India produces an assembly line of talent. So all of his talk and, you know, um, brashness or whatever positive exterior he put, 
you know projects is also backed up by not only his skill but also the the game that india has today in in its at the grassroots level right so wouldn't you say that's a big proponent in kind of like you know peddling this whole new um, india front yeah no i i absolutely agree with you i mean i think that 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 is what we should focus on that we are a much better prepared sort of cricketing um nation um because we produce better cricketers not because we produce angrier cricketers right. or more aggressive cricketers right like right. i don't i don't i and, think the those things are disconnected yeah and, and mesh i i completely agree with your point because uh, I, i think raghu was mentioning that you know we've had steve was australia which did the mental disintegration and all of that and all their their tactics and they were successful but at the heart of it they were successful because they were a really really good australian team yeah like exactly. that mental disintegration might have you know pushed a, a team over the edge in a few scenarios but they played ridiculously good cricket for the most part and, and that was good enough for most so you i know, think that's a point that people often miss one of the one of the things that that i find most exciting about this uh, this batting lineup that we've got now that that finally potentially we have an answer to uh you know the australian combination of uh, hayden at the top of the order and gilkis at the bottom of it we have a tank yes. at the top and a bizarre to come in at the end <laughs> we've got our own yeah. our own version i mean you know we don't have a tank but you know shubman gill looks amazing i mean he looks right absolutely this is the finished article at this stage of his career it's rare really um and i love pant i mean he's just so entertaining I, i can't wait to watch what happens tomorrow if he stays in for an hour we'll be golden i'm like 250 <laughs> I'm all I'm asking is 30 minutes of pure punk madness <laughs> that's all you want. Yeah, uh, I just my... want Leach to pitch it in the rough, you know. <laughs> see where it goes. <laughs> the other thing that I've always wondered and I know you're not any closer to the team than we are but just a thought that I've always had is the impact that this sort of coverage has um on other players, uh, you know. So there's a lot of focus on these uh, whether it was Ganguly in that day whether it was Gambhir during his brief stint or uh Kohli now there's a lot of focus on that and and you mentioned the test right even in the test there's they keep talking about Kohli as if there's not a good batsman other than that in, in that lineup when that obviously wasn't true so i'm just trying to think like what impacts both positive and negative that could have on a on a team uh and what everybody's thoughts are on that yes i mean i i you know just briefly on this because i you know like i don't have any great insight into this but i think that um this series in australia was good for the Indian cricket team um because not having kohli there i think allowed other players to step up and shoulder some responsibility and then they also you know they also won so they learned that they could do it um without him which now that he's back you sort of have both the benefits of having his talented talents in the team and also having a team that doesn't feel like you know the sky has fallen on their heads when he gets out um because i you know i don't know about you guys but i i think that there was a sense before the series in australia that once kohli left it would be a formality oh, um, i believe that, that. <laughs> right you know i believe that as well exactly and um had you know the series not happened and had kohli got out the way he did today to moin ali um i would have felt you know much worse about it i would have felt you know that oh god you know with we've lost three wickets um nothing is going to but now you feel differently now you feel like you know the other players might pick up the slack they i think most importantly they feel like they can pick up the slack because they've done it right. um so i think i think these things are difficult to make sort of categorical judgments about because i think they change over time and you know events have an impact like this is i think has had an impact um but i think currently we're in a good place i think we get to have him in in the team i think he made two good 70s in the last few innings 
um, but when he gets out cheaply, you know, the rest just carry on. Right, and I think uh, also, I don't think it's detrimental, like all the attention on Kohli is, I don't think it's necessarily detrimental to the rest of the team, because I think he absorbs all of the media focus on himself, and it allows the other players to kind of do their thing, you know, just do what they need to do. And I think we saw that reflected in the Australia series after Kohli was gone, you know, and especially after that 36 all out, it was almost like, well, what are we going to expect from these guys anymore anyway? And I don't know, I, I just feel, and especially add to that Rahani as captain, it, it just felt like the personality of the team changed, uh, at least for that, for those three tests where they just played freely with no fear of losing. It was just, you know, I, I think that a team does take the shape of the person who's leading it, right? So under Rahane, it was a different, a transformed team is what I felt because under Kohli, it was always going to be focused on him. So I think overall, the, the focus on Kohli, and I don't think he minds it either, as long as they stay focused on him and the rest of the players can just go about their job, I think it works for the Indian team. Now, the only only comment I was going to make was, yeah, I mean, I think that definitely, I, I don't think Kohli minds it at all. I think he's, in fact, in, in some interviews, he said that it, it actually motivates him to do even better. And I remember the, uh, if you guys have read and followed Cricket Couch on Twitter, he's, he's talked about when he was covering a series for Crick Info or, or some some uh, publication, he was in the elevator with Kohli and he sort of passed a comment saying, you've not scored 100 since 11 ODIs. That's kind of lean for you. This was two, three years ago. Next game, he scored 100 and he saw him again in the lobby and he said, how about now? Or some something to that sort. So it, it definitely eggs him on. So he is that kind of character. And um, I, I find it fascinating because in, in, in my mind, the way I function, I crumble under pressure right away. So <laughs> I, I think that sort of psyche is just something else. And um, I do think it, it shields some of the players, as you said, where you know they can just go about their business and there's less focus. My only counterpoint to that, and again, this is me just thinking through what possibly happens in that in that mode, is somebody like a Hardik Pandya. Like he, I don't think he's another one who doesn't mind the limelight, you know. So I, I don't know how it impacts players like that. That would be my only question. And again, we probably won't have any insight, any definitive insight, unless we we talk to them directly or talk to somebody around the team. Sounds like Kohli um, uh, is like a. In, in football analogy, he's like a reverse Mourinho. He kind of like, you know, takes all the attention off players, but doesn't deliver. So, <laughs> uh, so, so Raghu, um, you know, there's a line in your article, or you framed this question, how do sporting teams represent their nations at all? Uh, you know, th that is an interesting question for sure, because I've always struggled to dissociate from, you know, for, for lack of a better word, uh, perceived ownership of the team. So when I talk about the Indian team, I always say we won or we sucked, uh, not not the Indian team won. You know, it's funny, my wife yeah. used to make fun of me uh, and ask, you know, whenever I say something like that, she's, she'd be like, why are, are you playing for the Indian team? Um, but I suspect that there are many people like me, you know, why do you think we're quick to adopt sporting teams as an entity that is accountable to us as fans? I mean, you know, I, I think there's there's lots of there's lots of interesting work on this, but um, I think that you know part part of the reason is that you know one one of the things that I sort of briefly touch on in in the article is about how national sporting teams 
are part of how national identity is also is constructed right um so so that ownership that you're talking about is basically that that overlap of and and the reason why it's such a such important combination the sort of sport and the nation um is because you know it sort of brings together all of these i don't know how do you sort of phrase it but but basically it brings together a bunch of people who are very good at the things that all young men want to be good at right, right? all all of us grow up wanting to be good at cricket or football and at the same time they sort of you know i say i say we i say you know the when i'm talking to my friends about my english friends about about this i say you know your lot or you know you guys um when i refer to when i refer to their team um but i basically you know i think it's evidence of the fact that these you know that these teams are in fact representative of the countries that they claim to represent um how that happens is i think the more interesting question i think that um you know like like i say in the piece um political representation there is an easy how we know how mps or congressmen or prime ministers represent us because there is a mechanism there right we elect them um but there's no there's no similar mechanism in sport you know we're not the guys who select the team we don't have any say in what they do um so i think i think the mechanism of representation is is more opaque but you know but as you point out um the fact that we all slip into the you know the collective we when we talk about the team i think is proof that they do represent us yeah i just wanted to piggyback uh, off of both of your points here right um this collective we right like for example um drago you're not going to like this but i've forged an identity with chelsea you know way back in 2000 under Ranieri right so yeah. every time chelsea play i get really passionate you know not as passionate as when the indian team plays because there's a deeper connection or deeper roots but every time chelsea do well or you know do poorly i tell my brother that hey we lost today or we won he goes like who how are you connected to a club in london you know it's like you have no connection but then you know as you grow older you understand the mechanics of sport right how it's like we live in a globalized world right so the distance between me in india to a club in um london is shrunk it's almost non existent right so and then that's one point that's why we want to associate with like you know different clubs and different teams etc and ultimately we're all wired uh to win right like nobody wants to like uh lose or you know perform poorly intentionally right like so that's one of the reasons why we just like use these teams as like vicarious experiences for us to like you know enjoy the ride while they're doing well and sometimes that's why you see the fair weather fans right they kind of like you know switch out when they lose and switch to a different team because ultimately the 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 common cause is we all want to win right the vehicle that delivers that feeling is doesn't really matter but then of course you reach a point where that matters too so you stick with the team or the club through thick and thin is it's my two cents on that yeah no i mean i i think that um supporting a football club is interesting um so one of one of the interesting things that has happened i think over the last 20 years with the way you know with the change in club ownership with the increasing sort of globalization of the game of of club football um and the increasing sense that the bigger clubs don't really have an identity beyond being you know these massive corporate machines that have to make money um i think for myself you know as like like you in the early 2000s for, for absolutely no good reason completely randomly because my best friend was an arsenal fan i became an arsenal fan yeah <laughs> uh, that was literally it he he spent two years in london and um he became an arsenal fan because the first jersey he bought happened to be a burkham jersey it was you know it's a completely random chain of event um but i know for myself that over the last you know 10 years um what you know since since arsenal wenger left 
um, my attachment to the club has sort of changed because there was a story you could tell yourself that, you know, Arsenal plays a certain way. They play attractive football. They promote young players. Why are these things important? These things are important because, you know, suddenly you, you've incorporated them into your identity as a fan. And because these are corporate behemoths which don't care about your identity as a fan, um, these things can go away. Right? And suddenly you're a big spending club who spends 70 million on players you don't need, etc. Um, but and, and suddenly you find yourself slightly unmoored because you're just like, what do I do with this new reality which my identity doesn't conform to? So national teams are easier to follow in this continuous way because the, the, the sort of the stories you tell yourself are more durable. And there are certain fundamental things that are more difficult to change um, because national identity seems uh, more permanent than the identity of these, you know, these clubs which don't have, um, you know, your interests or, or your preferences as, uh, as their top priority. Um, so I think, I mean, I, you know, there, there's another sense in which I'm not sure that national identity is very different from, from you know, this kind of club fandom. I mean, it's, it's constructed in the same way. Um, we buy into it. We think it's real because we are brought up that, that way, and you know that it, it, it's cultural. It forms a bigger part of our lives. Um, but you know things could change very quickly, and then suddenly you find yourself in a new reality which doesn't conform with what you think your national identity is. So I think I think you know I think these things are I think these things are changeable. Um, I think a large part of um, being a fan is sort of telling yourself stories and uh, hoping that reality conforms to the ones you've told yourself. So Raghu, you, you talk about this combination of aspiration and insecurity that permeated mm-hmm. Indian cricket, uh, particularly towards the late 1990s, you know, and the phenomena of cherishing overseas wins while distri- disregarding wins at home. I mean, that still continues to this day. So, yeah. uh, and not just in cricket though, right? It seems to permeate every aspect of society. Uh, that is the reason why there are YouTube channels where Americans or Europeans will record reaction videos to everything from Indian movie trailers to Indian food. And these have huge followings. And, you know, that is a reason why, you know, most Indians want to claim a piece of every successful Indian or Indian origin person who makes it big on the global stage. And I feel that a strong sense of Indian identity seems to rely on what foreigners say about them. Would you agree with that? Do you think this colonial hangover will eventually drop off? Yeah, I mean, so I don't, I don't know if it'll drop off, but I mean, I think the way I, the way I thought about it was sort of historically, because what you say is, you know, is true, you know, good evidence of it. Um, you know, they're all not in India talking about Indian history and Indian sport. Um, so I, I, I definitely think that there is a sense um, that there is opportunity abroad. I know that um, growing up, you know, my friends and I would always talk about um the possibility of living somewhere else for a while um and you know it was something to aspire to something that you know we thought would be would be good life would be better in various undefined ways um i think that the interesting thing that this that that sort of writing this made me think about was um what what sort of change did an event like liberalization have on the way we thought about how we orient ourselves outwardly so you know, I think that pre-1992 or, you know, let's say my dad's generation of people grew up with the sense that, you know, things were different abroad, but they were different in a way that wasn't necessarily something that you could replicate, right? Like it was, um, it wasn't as, I think, you know, the world was less globalized. It was less easy to, to travel abroad, less easy to stay in touch with people back home. Um, right. Moving would involve, you know, setting up a new life 
completely. There was, you know, they, you couldn't WhatsApp people at all or things like that. Um, and I think that what liberalization did is that it opened us up to, you know, cultural products from from abroad and the sense, and in in a sense, it it brought us closer to what was happening in the rest of the world. And I think when it brought us closer, it also sort of made the possibility of copying that more real. So if you know you're different, but you're quite far away from the thing that you see as desirable, you don't know where the idea in your mind of trying to replicate it because it's just, it's unattainable. But right. I think when you get a bit closer to it, there is a sense in which this breeds the anxiety that I was talking about, you know, because suddenly you can aspire to those, you know, that standard of living or consumption of the same kinds of cultural products or, uh, you know, foreign holidays or, you know, moving abroad or all kinds of things like that. So I think that this reflected something that's always existed in cricket, which is, um, you know, the, the the sort of gold standard for cricket batting has, for batting cricket has, has always been batting against good fast bowlers on pitches that are friendly to fast bowling. Right. Um, I, I think that that's partly, you know, a colonial thing. But I also, it's, I think it's partly a cricket thing. Like, I think fast bowling is just exhilarating. And fast bowling, good fast bowling is just to face. It's the toughest right. test the batsman has to face. Um, you know, there are great spinners. There have been great spinners. Um, and, you know, some of them are incredibly difficult to face. But I think that element of danger isn't there. Um, I think that there is some sense in which ideas of masculinity are tied into this as well. Um, you know, it requires a certain amount of bravery to be able to stand in front of somebody who's bowling at 90, 95 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is just baked into the game. I think that um, until, you know, the, 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 there is a possibility that India starts producing, you know, fast bowling pitches and good fast bowlers. And that then wins at home. You know, that'll be the test case. That if suddenly we have our own domestic equivalent of the GABA. Um, yeah. Um, and we produce our own battery of incredibly fast 90 mile plus bowlers. Um, that'll be the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'm, what hey, I'm saying is that we're getting that there. We're getting there. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I think I think that there is a recognition that we can do it. Um, and it would be, you know, it would be interesting to see in that case whether um, wins abroad were still were still ranked higher than wins at home. I think that it would be slightly different. Uh, coming to the crux of your article. Uh, you know, you state that the new generation of Indian cricketers personified by the likes of Mohammad Siraj, Washington Sundar, Rishabh Pant, Tina Trajan, and so on. Uh, these players are the true face of modern India. One that does not have to borrow uh, the identity of another country or another cricket team. And you're right, they're definitely not what Greg Chappell would call Australian, non-Australian cricketers. But from an Indian context, you know, does their success demonstrate that cricket is this you know, great leveler, or does it just paper over the vast disparities and opportunities for cricketers from different socioeconomic backgrounds? No, so I, I think that I think that it sort of shows shows us the way forward, right? Like I think um, I think the reason why their stories are um, so powerful is because we recognize that sometimes talent isn't enough. That that these guys made it not because they were talented, but also despite all of the other barriers that they had to overcome. Um, to play the game at the highest level. Um, so I think it's important to recognize that there are barriers to entry um, to playing cricket, which are material sometimes. So, you know, if you, you know, Shardul Thakur had to travel, whatever, six hours a day to play cricket, um, they are material. If you don't, if you can't buy the kit, if you can't afford to spend all that time playing cricket rather than working. Um, so, you know, talent itself is not enough. 
um, I think what I mean when I say that um, they represent the face of New India is that they represent what we should aspire to, which is to make um, cricket accessible to um, you know to people who don't necessarily come from wealth or who are comfortably off, so they can afford to to pursue cricket as as a as a vocation. Um, and I think that the IPL has done, you know, shows us part of the way forward because of the way it's forced people to look for talent elsewhere. Um, but yeah, but I definitely think it's sort of first step, not not uh, not the end, not not the destination. Well, speaking of representation, you know, this reminds me of Cricket South Africa's, you know, controversial selection quota policy. So if followed strictly, uh, they would never be able to put the best 11 on the park at all times, but it might just put up a more representative team. Do you think that could work in India where, you know, can we be conditioned to accept a more representative team than the best possible one? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's a choice, right? I mean, I think that um, the South African the South African quota is that they have to have six players of color in their team on average over a year, right? Right. Um, there's no reason why they couldn't have 11 and it'd be the best team that they could field, mm-hmm. right? The, the the point is that these that that this kind of quota has an effect. It's not just um, that. Okay, so I mean, let me let me let me let me uh, put, give you an example. I mean, why is, for example, the Bombay School of Batting so successful? You know, it's not that there's something in the air in Bombay. It's that there is great coaching. There are formal and informal scouting networks. Talent is picked up very quickly, and it's it's then groomed so that it you know so that those players can achieve their potential right um this is not available to everyone um so if you're not in you know if you're if you're from a rural area which doesn't have a history of cricket or excellence in cricket um you might be a genius but you're not going to be picked up so what we should try to do is expand the you know expand access to the game to players who might be enormously talented um but just don't get picked up because there are other barriers to playing the game so you know if you want to talk about quotas um, so I mean, you know, it's a, it's a sort of two-step argument. If if we're agreed that there are barriers to entry to playing cricket which are independent of your talent, so you know you're good enough, but there's something else that stops you playing the game. If we right. agree that those exist, um, and we're agreed simultaneously that quotas like the domestic player quota in the IPL have a developmental effect, as in they they spur people to find talent that they hadn't previously reached out to. Then what you're doing is you're just you're just expanding your talent pool. So currently, there are players who, are, who who must be talented enough to play the game at the highest level, but are not able to for material reasons. And there are there is a mechanism through quotas that could force institutions like you know domestic um, teams to expand their scouting networks because you would be forced to find players from you know say lower castes or socioeconomically weaker sections of society who otherwise don't get to play. I mean, Indian cricket's history with um, caste representation is not good. I mean, you know, we don't, it's a, it's an upper caste sport. There's no, there's no, you know, there's no reason that should be the case. It just, it, it is the case because that's how caste works. It's about access to resources, to, um, you know, to, to the things that I was talking about, to coaching, to how you get picked up, to being able to afford to play the game. Um, so I think that, you know, so I think that if we, if we accept, and it's a bit, it's an if, not everybody has to, but I think if you accept that, um, the the domestic player quota in the IPL has had this effect of making people reach out, find more talent. Um, then that logic applies to any other 
um, any other team or any other sort of scouting net? The one thing I'll say is I was trying to think about the name of the program that PCC had started many years ago, where, you know, to Raghu's point, they were trying to scout players from places where they typically wouldn't have as many opportunities. And that I was just Googling on the side, and it, it, uh, it was the TRDW, which is the Talent Resource Development Wing. And, and you know, many journalists of cricket, especially ones who've covered cricket for, you know, 20, 30 years, say that that program was key in nurturing the potential talents such as Amazonia himself. So I think that's that's another piece which will sort of bring, you know, more and more cricket cases where we see people like Siraj and people like Shardul who, who won't have to travel that long and they'll have facilities and pitches in their smaller towns or they'll have scouts who will at least take them to, to better facilities either way. So that will probably help bridge the divide as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely does come down to opportunities and, and that's why traditionally we've seen the Mumbai and, and Delhi teams doing well or Tamil Nadu doing well because they've generally had, you know, better wickets, better preparation uh, right from a young age. And what I would also like to see is more cricketers from the Northeast India as well, like players from Manipur, Mizoram, Nagaland. Like I never hear of cricketers coming up from those regions. And I really wish, especially with IPL having been around for as long as it has been, that we would have some cricketers from there just to kind of encourage development of cricket cricket and cricketers there. Um, and I think that would definitely make India a more representative, like the Indian team, a more representative team, if we're talking about that. Yeah. And, and you know, I think, I think that, like you say, I think that the, that representation like this is a good in itself. Um, but I think in the specific case of, of cricket, um, because, you know, things like quotas are a tough sell, right? Like it's, they're unpopular. Um, because there's this thing about merit that, you know, the best players won't get in as if, you know, cricket selection isn't rife with nepotism, um, you know, from top to bottom. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that the IPL has really shown us that there is untapped talent out there, that if we channel it properly, if we actually gave people the opportunities to play, it's a win-win. You know, you, you get, like you say, a more representative team, but you also tap into talent, which would otherwise, you know, it would never cross their minds to play the game because it isn't feasible for so many other reasons. Oh, I just wanted to say that this has been an eye-opening conversation. I learned a lot of things in the last hour and a half. So thank you, Raghu. Appreciate your time. No, thanks very much, guys. So it's been it's been great chatting. Um, I look forward to listening to many more episodes of your of your podcast. Well, Raghu, I want to thank you so much for agreeing, first of all, to come on our podcast and talking to us about your article. You know, I want to end by saying that my favorite line was the last one in your piece: "A cricket team can't redeem a nation, but it can represent the better angels of its nature." And, you know, given all that is happening in India right now and all the expectations on Indian cricketers to be fearless role models outside of cricket as well, uh, that is the best we can hope for. Uh, for our listeners, you can follow Raghu on Twitter at, at RaghuK71 and his writings on thewire.in. Uh, we'll also be putting up the link to his article in our podcast show notes and on our website. So please do give it a read. Raghu, thanks again. And we hope you come back on our show in the future. Thanks very much, guys. I look forward to it. Guys, the IPL is around the corner. I know that it feels like one just ended last month, but thanks to COVID-19, we are getting back-to-back IPL tournaments within a short span of time. Here at the last wicket, we are not complaining. 
we'll have plenty of special segments when the 2021 edition gets underway. And today we have an IPL team treat for you, specifically an IPL trivia segment. So over to you, Nish. Hello, and welcome to the first ever IPL quiz. Hopefully not the last. So I have curated a set of 10 questions that our participants, uh, Benny and Mayank will compete and try to win the prize of being extra knowledgeable in IPL. So the questions are, um, so before I dive into the questions, I'll, I will give you a quick um, overview of the rules. So um, both Mayank and Benny have a, a buzzword. So as soon as I read out the question, they will pretty much yell out the buzzword and I'll be the adjudicator of the person who, um, I'll decide whoever, you know, was the first to spell out their buzzword. And don't worry, that, I, don't I, think, I don't think I'll be the first <laughs> in any of these questions, but go on. Depending on that, I will offer um, the question to the person. And each person I have current, I mean, each question uh, has a time limit of up to 10 seconds for which the answer has to be given to me. Are you ready, gentlemen? So this is for, uh, spanning and from IPL season one? Season one to all the current seasons. All right, let's go. Let's go down memory lane here. All right, you guys ready? <laughs> yes, sir. Yep. All right. Three, two, one. The first question is as follows. Who holds the record for the best bowling figures for an individual? Vivo. All right, we have Vivo, which is the buzzword for Benny. Benny, your time uh -huh. starts now. Uh, Sohail Tanvir. Bam, that's wrong. What? That's pretty sure. Or do you, Mayank, and your time starts now? Uh, just read them wrong. Wait, 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 I think I know the answer. Do I get another go? All right, so I, since both of you have um, or no, not this, answered correctly. Yeah, give so the it options. goes back to the person. Okay, uh, the options are uh, Lasit Malinga, Sohail Tanvir, Anil Kumble, Alzari Joseph. Vivo. Go ahead, Benny. Alzari Joseph. We have a winner. <laughs> Our first ever IPL quiz winner. I remember this now. Guys, I <laughs> think we should, we should also mention that Mayank is, he has been staying away from the IPL for a few years. Right, so that's, I think uh, that's a very good point to bring up. So he's at a slight disadvantage. That's but, that's uh, an important point because if <laughs> it's important points because of two reasons. I watched it in the beginning, which is why my buzzword is DLF, and <laughs> more importantly, I don't know any of the recent trivia. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so you know, if he does win this by some chance, you know, kudos to him. That would be very impressive. But he's at a slight disadvantage. So as long that's as that's correct. kept in um, mind. <laughs> So some context for his answer, um, Aljari, Alzari Joseph in the 20, 2019 season, he was actually making his debut replacing Adam Milne. And this fi these figures kind of like, you know, uh, overtook <clears throat> Sohail Tanvir's uh, six for 14 in the inaugural IPL in 2008. So, you know, this record has been there for 11 years and until uh, Aljari, Alzari Joseph uh, produced his phenomenal spin against uh, Sunrise's Hyderabad. There's some uh, context for the trivia. Question. I think he lost. His, I think he lost his father just before the game, or something of that sort. To I vaguely remember, so that was that made it all the more impressive. Um, so yeah, champion bowler. He was huh. he was really good, and I think because of injury, I think he missed the next edition. I think, uh, but yeah, he's a very exciting young prospect for West Indies, and I think we'll see a lot more of him in the coming years. Yeah, I just hope he leaves Mumbai Indians soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, moving on with our quiz here, question two, um, against which team did Arnold Kumble get his 
best figures of five for five. Vivo. DNF. We have Vivo, which is Benny. Benny, your time starts now. This is more of a guess, but I feel like it was against Kings 11 Punjab. Incorrect. Over to you, Mayank, and your time DLF. starts now. Deccan Chargers. Incorrect. All right, this is where I go into the options because our competitors are slacking here. <laughs> um, okay, option one is Delhi Daredevils. Number two, Chennai Super Kings. Number three, Deccan Chargers. Number four, Rajasthan Royals. Um, DLF. All right, Mayank, go for it. Delhi Daredevils. Incorrect, Mayank. Well, that eliminates, that eliminates two, and I feel it's definitely not Chennai Super Kings because I feel like that would have been burnt into my memory. Um, I think the only other Hello. option is Rajasthan Royals. We have a winner. Uh, <laughs> All right. So let two. me give you some... Benny's on a roll here. Poor Mayank. It's okay, Mayank. You still have a chance to come back here. You come back strongly. So yes, Anil Kumble did play the IPL. If you were wondering what the hell Anil Kumble was in IPL. Um, he played against, or he took his best figures of five for five against Rajasthan Royals, and his victims were um, Yusuf Jadeja, Munaf Patel, Shane Vaughan, and Kamran Khan. And interesting trivia here, uh, this match was actually um, played in Cape Town in the 2009 series, where the IPL had to be to South Africa. And in this game, another legend from Karnataka scored uh, 66 and won the man of the match. And it was none other than Rahul Ravid. That is correct. I got that one. Does that count for something? <laughs> yeah, just don't tell Mike it's an a actual point. question. Just don't just tell Mike it's not a question and then he'll be able to get the answer. <laughs> yeah, Mike, uh, as previously stated in this podcast, he doesn't do well under pressure. So <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding, Mike. All right, um, on to our fourth question. Wait, it's the third one. Oh, that's right. Uh, I don't know how to count. So <laughs> our third question, um, this is... Um, this is Pretty easy, I think. Let's see. Against which team did Dhoni walk onto the pitch to demonstrate against the umpires? This. I know this answer. Uh, maybe I should say Vivo first and spare Mayank the <laughs> agony of not knowing it. <laughs> but you should complete the question. So, Go ahead and complete the question. <laughs> okay, yeah. So basically, Dhoni walked onto the pitch after he got a wrong decision and he remonstrated with the umpires, which was the team at the end of... Which was the team that Dhoni was facing that day? So Vivo, first of all. And okay. the answer is Rajasthan Royals. Correct. Three out of three for Benny. See, I'm telling do, you, anything, you recall... related, anything related to CSK, I'll, I'm telling you, I'll remember. <laughs> do you recall the context behind this, Benny? Um, if not, I have it. I'm trying to like, you know, see how much of a CSK fan I'm thinking it was, it was a no ball. Was that ball to Jadeja or Santner? One of them. Oh, that is very close. That's a great uh, guess. You're very close. There was uh, Ben Stokes to Santner. It was a no ball that was called, but after consultation with the line umpire, Oxenford, the decision was reversed, which of course led uh, MS Dhoni to, you know, happily, not happily, stole onto the wicket and, you know, demonstrated the umpires in only a way that Dhoni can do and get away with it. So, yeah, and the decision was reversed and CSK did go on to win that game. You lost some fair play points. Very sad. Oh, yeah. But you know, I, I have to the remind day. the listeners. I have to remind the listeners. I run this podcast with three other CSK fans, which is not fair on me. <laughs> it's a really hard quiz. Don't worry, my aunt. There are some Delhi questions in here. 
that you may have uh, a chance of you know redeeming yourself all right question number four <laughs> question number four this is um again to batting chris kale has hit over 300 sixes in ipl who has the most number of boundaries dlf all right mayank suresh raina no mayank that's wrong but it's not very wrong what do you benny uh i'm gonna say gautam gambhir no that's incorrect as well man you guys oh, are disappointing <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, that was a wild guess. My ank back to you. Hey, what are the options? And this time I will give the options. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Virat Kohli, Suresh Raina, Wait. Shikhar Dhawan, oh, okay. Rohit Sharma. Um and of course we do know that Suresh Raina is incorrect as that was Vivo. Go ahead, Benny. Uh Rohit Sharma. <laughs> no, that removes what? two options out of the four. Oh my god. It's a 50% chance for my ank so Virat Kohli. No, Maya, if you got the 50-50 oh wrong, just like Virat Kohli's task abilities, it is indeed Shikhar Dhawan with 591 Shikhar Dhawan boundaries. Shikhar Dhawan has the most force in IPL history? That is correct. Shikhar wow. Dhawan has 591 boundaries, followed by Virat Kohli at 503. Yeah, that is, I, I cannot believe that. That's just crazy. But he has been that around forever. <laughs> yeah, he has been around for a while. And and more interesting is Suresh Raina has 493 boundaries. after skipping an entire season so that just speaks to the longevity of okay. the guys IPL, i mean uh, if you say i feel the first player that i associate with ipl is suresh raina like more than dhoni more than rohit sharma for mm-hmm. me like he is like mr ipl for me that is true that is true all right uh what are we at we're like we're at 4 3-0 for benny and mayank has yet to open the count all right on to our fifth question um who took the first hat trick in IPL in all of IPL not here sponsor's name all right mayank amit mishra no mayank it's a good guess but it's not quite correct i'm going to go for like a left field and say it was rohit sharma not very left field because he does have a hat trick but it's not him uh now i'll give you guys the options of um amit mishra which we already know is incorrect piyush chawla lakshmipati balaji and irfan irfan pathan vivo benny I just said Vivo. Hold on, <laughs> let me think. So, he is flouting the rules. That's a potential yellow card offense. That's ten seconds, right? Tell me when there's like two seconds left. Um, you have like five. Oh no! Now I'm not good under pressure. Irfan Patan. Incorrect. So fifty-fifty <sighs> chance again for my uncle. What were the options? <laughs> I'm very confused. Uh, so yeah, Amit Mishra, and... which was your first guess, which is incorrect, uh, and then yeah. um, Irfan Pathan was another guess, which is also an option by Benny, incorrect. So we are left with Piyush Chawla and Lakshmipati Balaji. Oh no, I remember this. I remember. My aunt is off the mark. It's three one. <laughs> you know what? Hey, we need a jingle for that. The moment. The moment you said Lakshmi Balaji the second time, I remember because I think I remember the third wicket. I think it was like slogged in the air. I, in fact, I think it was Piyush Chawla that was the batsman. I feel like the third wicket. That's correct. See, uh, see. He, it was it was Irfan <laughs> Pathan, Piyush Chawla, and V R V. Yes. Against, oh, okay. Uh, Kings Eleven Punjab. And I believe it was 2008. That's correct. Yeah. Wow. See, you remember the so most after, random, useless piece. And once again, I'll, I'll remind the <laughs> listeners. I'd like to remind the listeners another CSK question. <laughs> oh my god, I think uh I think there's a pattern emerging here. <laughs> After 5 rounds, uh the score stands at 3 for Benny, 1 for Mayank and 1 for the house. I'm not playing. Okay. Anyway, moving on to the sixth question. Um who did McGraw sign for in 2008? Vivo. Dela. Benny got the Vivo again and Benny 
uh, the the legendary but now defunct Delhi Daredevils. That is correct, and I feel like this is Mayank's question. See, it's not just CSK. I, I said DLF. <laughs> I said DLF, but I just wasn't quick enough, I guess. <laughs> you know, you know, this is like Rahani just all over again yesterday. The DRS, you know, we did a DRS for the review <laughs> decision. Sorry, Mayank. I'll keep my ears uh, wide open. So after six rounds, four for Benny, one for Mayank. Um, okay. Question number seven should be pretty straightforward. Um, how many foreign capitals have won the IPL? Foreign captains? How many foreign captains have won the IPL? Uh, PLF. Mayank. I'm going to say two, David Warner and Shane Warne. Wrong. Correct, Mayank. The answer is three. That is correct. Uh, Mayank, you almost got that one. Um, the third captain is <laughs> the great Adam Gilchrist. That's correct. In 2009, oh, beating right. the Chargers in South Africa. And you were uh, following the IPL rounds. back then, Mayank. No excuses. Yeah, no excuses, Mayank. <laughs> and, and nothing to do with Chennai as no well. So. This one question. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, five one after six rounds. Okay, question number uh, after seven rounds. Sorry. Um, question number eight, who has the most number of IPL ducks? Again, who has the most number of ducks? It might just be best if you give the options for this one. I have no Wait, idea. I'm going to take a guess at this. Vivo. Go ahead. Chris Gale. Nope. Incorrect. Monk guesses. I can't even come up with a guess right now. Rochamo. You know, I'm going to have to give that to you. That is actually the correct answer. Is it? Is, wow. it, it, it is it is correct answer based on a contingency that you know it's been shared with Harbhajan Singh, um, Rohit Sharma, Patu Patel, and Rahani. All are tied at thirteen ducks. So 13? there you go, Bank. Wow. Well one, done. One three. One three. That, that is that's a very lot surprising of ducks. to me. But it's uh, yeah, it is a lot of ducks. Nice guess, man. Good work. Finally, <laughs> After I'm eight rounds, me. the score stands at five for Benny, two for Mayank. Okay, moving into question. Moving on to question number nine. Um, Chris Gale scored his IPL best of 175 runs against which team? Vivo. Benny. <laughs> it is uh, another great but now defunct team. It was the Pune Warriors. Oh, that is that correct. <laughs> oh, my aunt. We need to get you a new buzzer or a new buzzword. <laughs> Six to after nine rounds. And the final Whatever. question. You know, Pune Warriors, they had a pretty good team. I feel like bad. Um, they had like a lot of weird, like random players, and they still did well, relatively speaking. They were not like great, but yeah, I remember Ganguly was the captain, wasn't he? For season, Ganguly for was captain. Season. That was like Michael Clark was in there for some reason. Yeah, it was just like it was just like a con- random concoction of players. Yeah, too, you, know? Like, you know, like Steve, Steve Smith. Smith. I don't know if Steve Smith was there. Steve Smith was for Rising Pune Super Giants, the the newer variant of the Pune team you know, oh, after okay. Pune Warriors. Yes. Pune, Pune Warriors. I think uh, those the uh, Kochi Tuskers. I think that was who Steve Smith played for at that time. I think it's you know it's all a blur. You know you can say random names, and I'll say I'll say it's a player. But well, yes, you know what? They're gonna have two more. They're gonna have two more uh, teams from I think 2022 or something like that. So the IPL is again gonna expand to like 10 teams. So yeah, maybe it'll be Pune again. Hey. Return of the Pune for like the third time more opportunity for, you know, very niche trivia there. So <laughs> for our last question of this segment's um, I quiz, who has the most 
Who has bowled the most expensive over in IPL? Um, Vivo. Okay, Benny. Um, I can't remember his first name. I know it starts with a P. Uh, I think his last name is Param Parameshwaran. Parameshwaran. That is, in fact, correct. <laughs> it it is. It is. Uh, we have a winner. A pretty, you know, pretty conclusive, uh, comprehensive, conclusive. You know, it's like. <laughs> Guys, I had a strategy. I was going to do the Australia series type, you know, let him go forward and then have an amazing comeback. That I didn't <laughs> time my, you didn't have time for <laughs> Didn't quite this time, man. But I think that's a very sound strategy given India's success there. So I would encourage to stick with it, you know. But yeah, um, some context surrounding this question. It was Parmes Swaran who went for 37 in an over in uh, a game against none other than Chris Gale. And some of the close contenders here are Parvinder Avana, who was also considered 33 runs against Suresh Raina in a qualifier that uh, where I believe Chennai were at chasing a 200 or close to 200 total. And CSK were after six overs, they reached 100 for one or two. And Suresh Raina was going all kinds of ballistics, scoring 80 of like 20 odd balls. So was that the semi final? And then that was a qualifier. Oh, right. I think IPL 2012. And then we do have some other 30-plus uh, uh, contendies here. Ravi Vapara once 30-plus runs, and Rahul Sharma also, uh, you know, considered 31 runs. There's a common theme here, and that's Chris Gale was the batsman. So <laughs> it's a hard surprise. <laughs> I remember Rahul Tewatia who scored the one 30 runs, right? This this year, earlier this that's year. That's correct, against, against um, Cottrell and... Cottrell, yes. That was... Seriously, some that was some uh, that was that came against the run of play as well because that innings was seemingly going nowhere and then out of the blue. I uh, was trolling Rahul Tewati, yeah. not just me. There were so many of us trolling him because he was like struggling so bad. We were starting to feel bad for him, and we were saying, "Oh, you should retire her. This is so painful to watch, and he must be like mentally just so shot." And then like <laughs> coolly hit, you know, the. 30, 30 runs in that over, and then he won the game, and then he was like calmly like walking back to the dugout. I was like, "Who is this guy? Yeah. What? <laughs> some he's some player." So after ten rounds, the final By score the way, stands I... at seven for Benny, two for Mayank, which makes Benny the winner here. But uh, Mayank, don't worry. Our next question, next round, next IPL quiz will be heavily Delhi focused and heavily early Delhi <laughs> for our in-house Delhi boys here at uh, for Mayank and Himanish. So don't worry, I got you, man. Yeah. By the way, Himanish I was like not it. here today, so who knows? This may have ended differently. <laughs> <laughs> I will say though, I will say though, I was checking on the side, and Steve Smith did play for Pune Warriors India. So he played for both. I wasn't wrong. There you go. So you're not your IPL history is not shoddy after all. The key. These are like you know your. The key to remember next time, Nish, when you ask a question, don't say it counts towards the quiz. I think Mike will get it right. No pressure. Let's pressure. Mike will try. Well, that's it for this episode of The Last Wicked. Please do join us again next week as we talk about Himanish's latest article on Crickinfo about how we perceive batting consistency. We will also be having a special guest to talk us through the outcome of the IPL auction later this week. So do subscribe to this podcast to be notified of new episodes. Follow us on your social media feeds and do spread the word about the show. For more details, please visit our website at thelastwicked.com. Once again, thank you for listening, and we hope you come back for more from all of us here at The Last Wicked. 
Have a great week.